This is the news from the Lord. Hello, everybody. This is Jeff Lord, and I am here with the great Rich Higgins, who has written a fabulous book. I'm going to hold it up. The Memo. 20 years inside the deep state fighting for America first. And oh, what a fight it has been and what a book this is. Let me just tell you a little bit about Rich in the the beginning. He's the president of HTG LLC, which is a strategic security and information warfare um, outfit, consulting service. But he served, uh, importantly, on uh, everything from the National Security Council, where he was the director for strategic planning until his dismissal by the deep state in July 2017. In 2004, he formed the Department of Defense's Irregular Warfare Support Program Office, where he served as the first program manager. He's a U.S. Army veteran. Uh, He holds a Bachelor of Science in Mechanical Engineering from Tufts University in our native state of Massachusetts, as well as a master's degree in strategic security from the National War College. And he lives with his wife and four kids in Virginia. So let me start. Rich, this is a great book, truly. Thank you, Jeff. You and I have uh, had some experiences in common in that we both worked in the White House. Uh, I was there for President Reagan. You have been there for Donald Trump and others. Um, I I wanted to start out by uh, observing this. The day that Donald Trump was inaugurated, I, I remember very well reading the Washington Post and a story that was datelined about nine minutes or so after he was sworn in on the front page of the Post was about impeaching the president. And he'd only been in office a matter of minutes. Right. Um, talk to me a little bit about Donald Trump, the outsider versus the deep state. What? How would you define the deep state what is it that you see? I mean, we'll, we'll go through this in some detail, but give me your overall first on this. Well, first off, I, I think I don't like the term deep state, right? It bestows upon them a level of credibility and strength that they don't really have, right? They, they're they the shallow state, right? They're, they're surface level events. They pursue other interests other than the protection of the country. And so often they find themselves... Uh, you know, protecting, I'll call it, uh, institutions and institutional norms uh, that are, you know, profitable to them. And, um, you know, as, as you as you sit and look at it, I think it's important that we don't get too conspiracy-minded about it. It's, it's right. right there in your face. And we've seen it with the headlines in the past week or so with uh, the Biden family, right? I mean, just just corrupt interests driving policy decisions and then institutional benefactors protecting them. One of the things that uh, I remember distinctly from the Reagan White House that we were very aware of, and it's a phrase that you use in the beginning of your book, personnel is policy. Could you explain that a little bit for our audience? Well, I think the the president, you know, President Trump, when he came into office as a business executive, when you look down at your employees, you give them specific guidance. And for example, if you're in sales, you have a quarterly number to hit or whatever. And if you don't maybe make the numbers in a couple quarters in a row, you're gone. 
The challenge isn't just getting the right personnel, okay, which is hugely important, but it's also in the government, it's much more difficult to remove some of the personnel. So the choices that you make, you're forced to live with either through regulatory reasons or through just political reasons. You know, there, you, you have to kind of, you have to kind of work within the, the media narrative and the informational political environment you're in. So, um, you know, I think the president has learned a lot. I mean, he's a quick learner. I mean, there's no question he yeah. realized, hey, I need to be a little bit more decisive and maybe, you know, evaluate who I'm bringing in a little bit more closely. No question about that. The problem is, you know, once it's an old military adage, right, where once an operation starts off kilter, you'll spend 90% of the rest of the effort trying to fix it. And that's right. where the president has, you know, he's survived his first term. And I think he's going to win here in a couple of weeks. When he does, he will be having his actual, perhaps, first term. Right. Yeah, I think you're right. Uh, there's no question. Uh, and again, I, I did see some of this in the Reagan era, that you have career people. I mean, there are lots of good ones, but there are career people uh, who, who, I mean, pres- in their view, presidents come and go. And they're there forever. Um, interacting with them, uh, how do you how do you get to know when one is not being above board with you and uh, really going behind the scenes to sabotage you? I mean, this guy, and I don't know whether you knew him or not. What, Eric, what was his name? Shirella or whatever, who was sure, the sure know, whistleblower? Yeah. Did you know him? Right. Uh, not personally. I mean, I saw him in the halls there. Yeah. Well, I mean, this is exactly the kind of person uh, I think that we're all concerned about, is that these people, um, they disagree with the president, and so they're right, the president's wrong, and they set about trying to subvert what the president is all about. On top of this, yeah, yeah go ahead. Well, so the, diff- the difference is I didn't agree with 99% of what President Obama wanted to do. Yeah. You know, what, 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 I, what I've seen lately, though, is – um, just this casual disrespect of the office of the president. You know, I, I don't care if you like President Trump's personality or not. He's the president. Uh, and you follow the orders of your, of your boss. And what I see now today is this uh, culture of, um, you know, it's just, ex- it's excessively intolerant, it's, into- it's excessively intolerant of positions that don't align uh, with their own. And I, I think one of the things that concerns me is, um, there is a there is a there is an anger in President Trump, and I think the media kind of dings him on that. But it's a righteous anger. He has a right to be angry for how he was treated. Uh, it, it is unprecedented in American history to see a transition like that. And I elaborate a little bit on that in the book uh, to go into a greater level of detail in the in the scale and the scope. We probably have to write a series of books uh, because the campaign against him was just so massive and so uh, broad ranging. You know. Yes, yes, it was. I mean, this book that you've written is, uh, as I see it, in essence, two books in one. One is about all the things that you have observed through your career, which is truly fascinating. Uh, and the other is about the memo itself. Uh, why don't we start there? Why did you feel compelled to write the memo in the first place? I had been a counterterrorism advisor, although not full-time with the campaign, and, you know, the, the campaign itself was, was pretty crazy. I mean, it was the pirate ship, right? And so we win, and 
the next day, I remember telling uh, I remember telling General Flynn and uh, Steve Bannon and others, hey, you know, I know you think you won, but we've just boarded the boats to Omaha Beach. <laughs> you know, they are not just going to give up power. Right. Unfortunately, because we didn't pay close attention to the personnel, and I think Bannon called it the original sin of the administration, we and we arrived on Omaha Beach with Germans in the boats with us. And well so said. and you saw, you know, and right. And Flynn went down right away. And, uh, you know, um, Jeff Sessions was walking wounded for the next two years. I mean, it was just it was just insane. Now, some of us saw this coming. And one of the reasons I wrote the book was to say, look, we knew, you know, that there was this, you know, this invisible sort of shadow government in place that in, in having experienced it directly in the Pentagon for a number of years where decisions were being made in the war on terrorism that were inexplicable, you know, to the guys fighting it. And so I think what what in General Flynn is reflective of that as well, right? I think what what I was trying to do with the book is to kind of show people that it was the election of President Trump was the next phase in this fight to reclaim the government that had been going on inside the government for some time. As a matter of fact, it went on back when you served in the government and the Reagan administration as well. The parallels between the Reagan administration and what's happening with Trump are, are, are right there. I mean, they're not exactly the same, but they're very similar. Yes, they are. And uh, when he was running, I always used to compare him to Ronald Reagan, which drove some of my more establishment Republican friends crazy. But uh, he liked it. And and as a matter of fact, he he came to uh, Hershey, uh, which is uh, about 20 miles from here, uh, right after the election for a thank you rally. And uh, they they put me in the front row and he, he calls me out and says, He's always comparing me to Ronald Reagan. He says, that's not so bad, is it? And the crowd, the crowd roared. But I mean, I just see the similarities. They're both outsiders. I mean, you're more, there are other things more surface oriented that are in a way important because they both came out of uh, the world of television and uh, they had a, a good understanding of the media, which is in turn what drove the media crazy then and drives them even crazier now. Um, one of the things I wanted to ask you is, what do you think the state of this is now? Uh, you talk in the memo, uh, which was written again in 2017, that the, pres- the Trump presidency is dangerously inadequate to the threat. Do you think he's got it now, has got it improved, and, and things are under control in that sense? He's definitely in a better position. I, I haven't spoken to him myself in almost a year. But he's definitely, as of a year ago, well and aware of what he's now dealing with. Yeah. The political, the political move. You know, the for example, do I get rid of Ray? These are these polit- these are political decisions. You understand? You can't just you know remove somebody. And it's, it's more complicated than that with the Senate, etc. Right. I think he understands what he's fighting. I think, uh, my, you know, I'm, I'm surmising, and this is my opinion. I think even, uh, I think even. Um, when you when he looks out the window and he sees what the BLM and the Antifa folks are doing in the streets, I think it even shocks him. Uh, and that is, I think, his his great gifting is that he forces the the hyper left, the Marxist left, to surface. Where um, you know Reagan, in in his own way, did the same thing. Reagan understood how to use the media. He he because he knew how to speak via the media and to control political throw weight, to get B-roll and where to use it. But they both share the same anti-communist 
American view on the world. Uh, it's not partisan. Uh, you know, President Trump, you know, I, I, I told the president once that he won at the first Republican debate where he refused to raise his hand and say he would support the candidate because he right. became at that point a de facto third party candidate running on Republican infrastructure. And, yeah. and that is the same thing we see today. You know, he, he didn't win Pennsylvania and Michigan by pulling in all the Republicans, right? No. Working, working class people came out for him, the middle class. Well, you know, because I was on television a lot at the time, when, when I would go to these Trump rallies, uh, you know, I get recognized. And I, these people would come up to me and say that they were identify themselves. They were Democrats. They were union members um, yeah. or or they had never voted before because nobody had motivated them to get out and vote. Uh, just yeah. uh, several weeks ago, I was in Washington County, PA, and, and the guy on the stage was the president of the Boilermakers Union, a lifelong Democrat. And uh, he was there to tell people that his union was supporting Donald Trump. So I see it. I see it all the wow. time. And the thing that always amazes me, they have the technology. I mean, these aren't just rallies. They get the the uh, right. party affiliation of every single soul that walks in there and a way to contact them and all of that. So it's it's very it's very efficient. Talk to me a little bit about uh, cultural Marxism as you discuss it in here and what that what the impact of that is uh, on the Trump administration and just in general. It's probably best reserved for like a political science class. But I mean, <laughs> in, in the simplest in the simplest terms, I mean, it is. I'll, 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 I'll put one, I'll put one kind of political science concept on the table. The, 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 at the Frankfurt School in Germany, as the, you know, as the Marxist kind of ideology grew there, uh, prior to being, you know, pushed off by the Nazis in the 1930s, and they settled here in the U.S., in Wisconsin. And one of the things that they always talk about, the Marxists talk about, is this concept they call it Aufheben der Kultur in the German, which is negation of culture. Okay. What do we hear today in, in America? Cancel culture. Cancel. So when they right, right. So this this cancel culture is the best example of cultural Marxism. It's it's the it's the forced inversion of of the, a people a nation to attack its own culture. As we see Americans now turning their back on our, you know our national pastime football, okay, or we see Americans turning on our own you know cultural celebrities. That is that is induced nihilism. It is cultural Marxism. Now, the enforcement mechanism of culture and Marxism and the weapon system, if you will, is political correctness. Right. Yeah. So through political correctness, they weaponize narratives and they use it against them, uh, against Americans in America. And the perpetrators aren't necessarily foreigners. They're other Americans co-opted by this ideology. So it's a very insidious threat. It's 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 hard to get your mind around it at first. But once you do, you'll you'll see it, and it's there every day. I mean, you know, President Reagan fought this 40 years ago, and the thing that President Reagan had that President Trump did not have is President Reagan had been fighting communists for 40 years. Right. He 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 understood coming in the very essence of the Cold War at its ideological roots, and I, I always re remember. Um, and I, I contrasted what Secretary Gates said, Secretary of Defense Gates said in probably 2007, 2008, during the Cold War, you know, we were two equal superpowers staring one another down. And I remember thinking to myself, Ronald Reagan would never say that because in the moral dimension of war, we were never equals. 
You know, and I think that's that's the something we have to remember as Americans. I remember vividly uh, President Reagan's very first press conference after he was sworn in as president, and I think January twenty fifth. And Sam Donaldson stands up and from ABC stands up and asks him uh, something about relations with the Soviet Union. And Reagan says, and I'm paraphrasing only a bit here, that when you're dealing with somebody who reserves under themselves the right to lie, to cheat, and to steal, you, you better have your eyes open when you're dealing. Well, there was an audible intake of breath by the White House press corps because, of course, presidents didn't say that kind of thing about the Soviet Union. Yeah. But, uh, you know, Reagan would do it, and that's another thing he hasn't common with Donald Trump is he will uh, Donald Trump will say exactly right. what's on his mind as I, I can't wait till the debate <laughs> tomorrow night and uh, apparently he's walked out on Leslie's stall which is just appalling all kinds of people um, here um, academia well first before I get to that let me let me go back to political correctness uh, talk a little bit about political correctness in the military as you see it, because that's what, what I, I found fascinating in your book, uh, The Memo. Let me just uh, restate the name and uh, talk a little bit about it and how, how dangerous it is in the American military. Well, you know, the, the, the greatest risk that I, you know, that I, I, I guess the simplest way to explain to people is when you are working in the military, particularly as it relates to strategy, intelligence collection, um, information operations, which is communicating with uh, foreign audiences. You need to understand the world through their eyes, okay? And when you begin to participate in the world through this politically correct prism, you divorce yourself further and further from reality. And you begin to impose your worldview on the people that you're operating with or against in some cases. And it's a really dangerous phenomenon that happens. And you assign to them moral, cultural, ethical, political values that are Western or American. And they do not apply in a place like Iraq. And so one of the anecdotes I put in the book is talking about uh, specifically Condoleezza Rice and her, um, her desire to move past the tribal structure in Iraq. And, you know, in her politically correct mind, the tribal structure was barbaric and ancient and didn't have a place today. It was misogynistic and all these other things she didn't like about it. But it was reality in Iraq, and it needed to be accounted for in our operations and strategy. And that's kind of an example of sort of the multicultural PC groupthink and how that impacts our ability to speak truth to power inside the system. You know, I mean, imagine being afraid to speak up. Now, you 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 know, we had uh, the shooting at, uh, you know, with Nadal Hassan at Fort Hood. Numerous, dozens and dozens of officers heard him making these terroristic, threatening comments, yet they were afraid for PC reasons to speak up. Those are just two short illustrations. One of the things that uh, amazed me is (laughs) you quoted a, a, a general or someone saying that the greatest threat to the American military was climate change. Yeah. And I, yeah. I mean, that just blew me away. Yeah, it's 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 the it's system, it's systemic though, Jeff. I mean, this these are the things the institutional change. One of the reasons I really want President Trump to get his second term is I think he now understands where these institutional challenges lie. 
And, yeah. you know, he's not going to fix it in four years. I'm not, I'm not, that's not what I'm asking him to do. But he can begin, and he already has with the, uh, you know, the critical race theory and other things. He can begin to fix it. And that's really, I think, what we, you know, we hope he can do. Yes, exactly. Okay, now let, let me get back and, and ask you this about academia and its role in all of this, uh, which I, I, I mean, I totally get it, but I think it's important. I mean, you've got it here in your memo, and, and, and I think it should be discussed. Well, the university and the role of the university and the academy um, in Western civilization uh, can't be overstated. And so many of, um, you know, whether they be you know, Marxists or Islamists or whomever, recognize that the university is a critical node of power. Uh, in controlling Western civilization, because you can control their future thought leaders. So, in in the in you know, in influence operations, we always would target four principal groups: students and youth, labor groups, media, and elites. Well, students and youth, media, and elites largely you know evolve from these universities. So it's a it's a it's a launch point. It becomes a node for uh, counter or anti-American operations. And we see this. And where, where has it made the greatest inroads? Well, where there's a massive amount of foreign money coming into these schools, right? Georgetown, Harvard, mm-hmm. et cetera. And where they have uh, these, you know, these, these endowments that basically insulate them from any sort of accountability. They don't have to pay taxes. They're, they're, they're free to just kind of meander, you know, loosely in society uh, and, and largely they have devolved into these indoctrination finishing schools, right? It used to be in the universities, you know, in the sixties, you saw that happen to kids in college, you know, they go, they become a hippie. Some of them would stay hippies. Some of them would come up. But today, I mean, I'm afraid it, it starts as early as, you know, kindergarten and first grade. I mean, it's, it's, we, if you took a, if you took a, a Christian child, six years old with two Christian parents and you put them in public school, and you let them go through public school for 12 years, in most of the country, you will get back a Marxist when they're 17. Yeah. And I think that's a, that's, a, that's a massive national security issue that has to be addressed. Like one of the telling stories I've seen in all of the virus-related stories about kids in schools and all this sort of thing is teachers complaining in the homeschooling situation with parents where they're beaming into their class uh, that the that the parents are are uh, watching what the kid is being taught, you know, and they're upset with this and want the parents to vanish. Um, one of the things is somebody who came up through the political uh, realm. Uh, you talk about the uh, ongoing existential existential threat to establishment Republicans. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Well, I I, I think if 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 you um, if you look at the state of the country in the past 30 years, right? Uh, since, ironically, since the fall of the Soviet Union, um, the Republican Party has largely devolved into a corporatist party. It's the party of the corporations and the bankers. And the Democrat Party has devolved into the party of the statists and the bankers, right? And so what happens is the American middle class is you know, is basically disenfranchised from both parties. However, the Republican establishment 
serves as sort of the placebo to the middle class, where people elected ever-increasing majorities of Republicans in 2010, 2012, to stop, you know, for example, stop Obamacare, stop these endless wars in the Middle East, and the Republicans never did, which is why we got Donald Trump. Donald Trump became president because of their unwillingness to address that. I think President Trump and his new platform, you know, it's a, it's an existential threat to perhaps both parties because it's forcing this, um, it's forcing an already existing scene into the light. And uh, the Republican Party is going to evolve into the anti-Marxist, anti-globalist party, or it's going to go away because you know, that, that middle class that's out there, um, they, they're, they're awake now. I mean, President Trump, you see it in these rallies. Never, you know, whoever thought they'd see rallies in the United States where 50,000 people were showing up for a political rally. I can tell you, I've been to, uh, I was right before he came down with the COVID, he was here. And here being uh, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. And uh, he was at the airport. It was the day he announced uh, Amy Coney Barrett for yeah. the Supreme Court. So we had a huge screen up and watched this outside on the, on the, you know, off the runway there in front of a hangar. And then about two hours later, Air Force One lands literally right in front of us. And these people went berserk. I mean, just, yeah. I mean, you know, and they're shouting and yelling, we love you, we love you, we love you. I mean, I've never seen anything like these things in my life. And I certainly went to my share of Reagan rallies, but wow, these are, uh, these are mind-boggling. Well, we're coming towards the end of our time. I want to. I wanted to ask you: Do you have a prognosis? How do you think this is going to work out? And is there anything in particular that we should be doing to uh, get to that objective? The one thing that really concerns me, and what I see coming down the road, is the um, the censorship. You know, and, and not only in terms of the the silence of Republicans. Okay, with the exception of perhaps. Uh, Senator Hawley and um, maybe Senator Cruz I put in there sometimes. The silence on the censorship of conservatives is shocking. Yes. I mean, that is a crisis. Um, and I'm very concerned because I think we're running into a, you know, what perhaps will be the most conflicted election since 18, probably 1864, where, you know, you, you run the real risk in the transition integrity project where John Podesta talked about, you know, perhaps seeding a secessionist movement. I mean, truly unremarkable things being said, right? Yeah. Um, not, I, I, I'm not of the mind that they're necessarily going to move in that direction. I think it's far more likely you're going to see a color revolution type scenario where international bodies, international governments, the establishment, Republicans and Democrats and the mainstream media and social media create a crisis around the election, perhaps in Pennsylvania, thanks to uh, Supreme Court Justice Roberts, right? And that that crisis then becomes a narrative that they use to get Trump to concede by coalescing these forces against him. The, the, the way to stop that is a massive landslide victory on the part of President Trump. Uh, they won't be able to withstand that. Um, but you know, just the fact that we're even having to discuss it here in the United States is shocking. Yes, it is. It is. I mean, I think they want to deconstruct the American government <laughs> as we know oh, it, absolutely. society as, as we know it. Um, I had the opportunity to see him about a year ago uh, and, and asked, you know, how he was doing and everything. And he's sitting behind the desk and he goes like this with his coat and shrugs and says, well, I just get up every morning. I suit up and I go on out to do battle. 
and you know, a battle, <laughs> a battle it is. I mean, this is Thank exactly, God. this is exactly what it is. Well, you have written a fabulous book, a great uh, weapon in this battle. So I want to thank you for doing that. It is the memo by Rich Higgins, and I hope everybody within the sound of our voices will go out there and get it pronto. Thanks very much, and thank you, Rich. Thank you, Jeff. Thanks for hosting today. I really appreciate it. 